Well, this morning we are, we are continuing our series in, in, in the book of Luke, and um, so if you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 9, and uh, we're going to be picking up our series in verse 51, Luke chapter 9, verse 51. And last Sunday, as we were wrapping up our, our study together, I mentioned that beginning this week, we were going to be entering into the next major section of Luke's gospel, and, and that is the ministry of Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. The, the ministry of Jesus as he is, he's been up in Galilee, right? But that time is now coming to close. And we've actually spent, I think it's like 23 weeks just looking at his time in the region of Galilee. This is where Jesus spent the bulk of his his ministry, but that time is coming to a close, and Jesus is about to begin his journey to Jerusalem. And as we've been making our way through this study, up to this point, up to today, Luke's primary focus has been on establishing the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. That, that has been his, his focus. We've read story after story about Jesus. He's been traveling from village to village. He's been teaching. He's been healing the sick. He's, he's, he's cast out demons. He's raised the dead. And all of this, every part of it up to this point has been to establish the fact that the Messiah, the one that was long-awaited Savior of the world, that Messiah has come, something that we celebrate every year at Christmas. And that's, that's been the focus uh, of Luke's gospel up to this point. Well, today, today, as we, as we pick up our study in verse 51 in chapter 9, the book is about to take a dramatic turn. A major shift is about to take place where, where, where Luke is going to move away from the, the focus on the, the fact that the Messiah has come to now the Messiah must go. Instead of a focus on the Messiah's arrival, Luke is now going to be focusing on the Messiah's departure. And this is something that Jesus has been trying to prepare his disciples for, right? He hasn't hidden this. He's not been like keeping it a secret. He's been trying to tell them that this is coming. In fact, twice in just the last three weeks, Jesus has told his disciples that because he is the Messiah, he must suffer. He told them that he was going to be rejected by the religious leaders, he's going to be killed, and on the third day, he's going to be raised. And as we, and as we pick up our study this morning, that suffering, that death, that resurrection, and his ascension to heaven, that's exactly what is on Jesus' mind. So in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, this is where we're going to pick up, we read these words, when the days drew near... For him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. See, Jesus understands that, that his time on earth is coming to a close, that, that the days were drawing near for him to be taken up. Now, just a couple weeks ago, a couple weeks ago in chapter 9, we read about Jesus meeting with two Old Testament heroes. Who were they? Moses and Elijah, and he met with them on the Mount of Transfiguration. And, and do you remember what they were talking about? What were they talking about? What was it? Christmas. <laughs> no. No, what were they talking about? His death, his departure, right? They were talking about 
his departure. Verse 31 says that they spoke of his departure, which was about to be accomplished at Jerusalem. Jesus understands that that the time of his departure is drawing near, and he understands all of what that means. Jesus understands that before before he's going to be resurrected, before he's going to ascend to heaven to be reunited with his Father in heaven, he understands that that he's going to be rejected. This is what he's been telling his disciples. He understands that that he's going to be betrayed by one of his closest friends, right? He understands that that's what's coming. He understands that, that he's going to be arrested, he understands that he's going to be beaten. He's going to be, he's going to be flogged, which we'll, we'll get to eventually, but that this is a severe, severe corporal punishment that the Romans inflicted on people. And before he, after he's flogged, he's going to be crucified, the most excruciating type of death. He's going to have his body laid in a tomb, right? And then he'll be resurrected. Then he's going to ascend to heaven. And Jesus knows that all of this is what's in front of him. He knows that. And knowing all of this, Luke tells us that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. That takes a lot of courage, wouldn't you say? You know, it's one thing to respond in a moment, right? In a moment where you just do something very courageous. You don't even think about it. It's instinctive. Something very different to know days, weeks, months, years in advance of what lies ahead, and you set your face to march towards it. He was determined. He's resolved. Jesus is fulfilling here the words that were written about the Lord's servant in Isaiah chapter 50. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, these words were written. Isaiah chapter 50, listen to these words. I gave my back to those who strike my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Jesus here sets his face like a flint. Like, like a hardened stone. It, it, what, what Luke is describing here, what, what Isaiah is describing is a, a hardened determination to walk in obedience to the will of God and what he has planned for him. So with an uncompromising devotion, right, Jesus sets his face like, like a compass towards the cross, Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem where he is going to fulfill the mission for which he, for which he came. Last week, uh, I mentioned Mark chapter 10, verse 45, which says that the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus knows that this is the reason he came. In John chapter 3, verse 16, famous verse, right? It's the football stadium verse, right? Where it used to be. Do you, do you see that as much at football stadiums anymore? Okay, we need to bring that back. And first, I need to go to a football stadium. But if I went to a football stadium, I could bring a poster. So if anybody wants to send me to a football stadium, that's... I'll bring the John 3.16 poster. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The whole reason that Jesus came was to be a ransom for many. He came to die. 
He came to pay the, pay the price for, for our sins. And so Jesus, he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And in verse 52, we read that he sent messengers ahead of him who went and they entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So Jesus is, it's time. Setting a course, we're headed to Jerusalem. This is what's gonna happen. I know what's in front of me, but I'm going. And, and, and he sends some of, his, some of his followers ahead to make preparations. Go ahead, head into town, see who's gonna, you know, find a place for us to stay, make preparations for some food. But the Samaritans say, no, thank you. Can't stay here. Interest is like his birth, right? But they're like, no, you can't stay here. No, I'm not gonna provide anything for you. What is going on here? Why are these Samaritans being so rude? Because this is, this is cultural rudeness to the max. And we think like, oh yeah, whatever. But this is, in that day, to deny hospitality was unheard of. Why are they refusing to offer the most basic of, of hospitality towards Jesus and his followers? Well, in order to answer that question, I think it's important for us to take a brief moment, I'll be brief, and just cover a little bit of the Samaritan history. Everybody loves history, right? Okay, if the person next to you starts to nod off, I see you in the back over there corner. They start to nod off, just give them a little elbow, wake them up. So we're gonna, we're gonna just do a quick little history review of, of the Samaritan people. And in order to do this, in order to really get our heads around where we're at and, and why we're experiencing this cultural rudeness right now, we gotta dial the clock back about 750 years prior to this event. That's a long time, right? 750 years. So we're, we're now in the period of the divided kingdom. Okay, you know that there was a, a united kingdom of Israel under King David and under King Solomon. After Solomon dies, the, the kingdom is divided into two, where you have a northern kingdom that is known as Israel, and then you have a southern kingdom that is known as Judah. Okay? Israel, Judah, Judea. And both of these kingdoms, both of them, uh, had drifted away from following God. Okay? Uh, the northern kingdom had an entire line of horrible, wicked kings. Not one good king ruled in the northern kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom wasn't much better, just had a handful of, of kings who, who loved God and wanted to live according to God's word. And so because of all of the idolatry that had permeated the land of both Israel and Judah, uh, because of all of the contaminated worship, God's judgment was falling on both kingdoms, on Israel and on, on Judah. First, it happened to the northern kingdom, okay? In 722 BC, 722 years before, uh, before Christ, okay? We're, we're talking a long, long, long time before Jesus arrives on the scene. In 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by the Assyrian army. The Assyrians were the ruling world power at that time. They come in and they wipe out the, the northern kingdom. And what they did as a practice, was that they took all of the, 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 the families and the people of Israel, or the majority of them, rather, they took them away into, uh, into Assyria. They took them as captives. They, they took them out of the land. And what they did is they repopulated the land of Israel with foreigners from other lands that they had conquered. 
So they, what, what you end up with is a small remnant of Jews living in Israel mixed with all kinds of different um, religions and people from all over the lands that the Assyrians had conquered. They all now live in Israel. And what you end up with is an uh, intermarrying of Jews with these foreigners, and you end up with a, a mixed people with a mixed religion where they are embracing a little bit of their, their heritage with Judaism, but they're also embracing all of these other religions as well. And so you've got a very mixed religion and, and, and mixed worship in Israel. That's, what, that's what's happening in, in the Northern Kingdom. Now, the Assyrians tried to conquer Judah, but God protected them at that time. It wouldn't be for another roughly 150 years later, or 130 rather, that the southern kingdom of Judah ends up being conquered, not by the Assyrians, but a rising world power known as the Babylonians. The Babylonians come in and they conquer the southern kingdom of Judah. And they take the, the, uh, the Jews who are living in Judah as captives back to Babylon, all right? The difference is they went as a people group over to Babylon. And while they're in Babylon, they didn't intermarry with the people in Babylon. And after 70 years of captivity, under a new king that rises, the, the, uh, under the, uh, the Persians, uh, a king by the name of King Cyrus, which, by the way, is prophesied in the Old Testament, one of the greatest prophecies in the Old Testament, um, this, this King Cyrus of, of, of Persia says, it's time for you to go back to Jerusalem. After 70 years of captivity, they go back to Jerusalem where they endeavor to rebuild the temple. Okay, because when the Babylonians conquered them, they destroyed the city, they destroyed the temple. And so these Jews, after 70 years of captivity, come back to Judah, and their heart's desire is to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Okay, you with me so far? It's fun, right? Just history, so much fun. All right, so they're back in Jerusalem, and they're ready to rebuild the temple. And up north, you have the mixed worship and the mixed religion of those who are living up there. And those people, because of their mixed religion, had become known as the Samaritans. That, was, that became their name. They were known as the Samaritans. These Samaritans, when the Jews return to Jerusalem, they say, oh, you guys are going to rebuild the temple? Hey, we can help you. Let's, let's go down and help them rebuild their temple. And the Jews returning from captivity. Why did they go into captivity? Because of their idolatry and because of their mixed worship, because they hadn't honored God, they had gone into captivity after 70 years. They come back, these mixed worshipers who are blending all these different religions say, hey, we'll help you build your temple. And the Jews said, no, thank you. No, thank you. We are not going to mix and end up back in captivity again. So they deny the help of the Samaritans and the Samaritans get really upset about this. They're like, oh yeah, well, got nothing to do with you either, right? And so what they decide to do is like, you know what? You go ahead. You build your temple there. They tried to stop it, but they were unsuccessful. They, so they said, you go ahead. You build your temple. We're going to build our own temple in Samaria. And so they built a temple on Mount Gerizim. And so you had in Jerusalem, you had the temple for the Jews. And then the Samaritans had their temple in Mount Gerizim up, up in the north. And by the way, if you go back and read the story of uh, Jesus and the woman at the well in John chapter four, in light of that history, all of a sudden it makes so much more sense when she says, where are we supposed to worship? You Jews worship down there in Jerusalem, but we worship on Mount Gerizim, right? Because that's the, that's the background that's going on. And so by the time that Jesus shows up on the scene, by the time he comes around, there is a 
centuries old bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans. They despised one another. They, they hated each other so much. Not a lot different than what we see in the news today, right? Their hatred was so strong that most Jews, especially religious Jews like, like the Pharisees, they would go completely out of their way just to avoid traveling through Samaria. Instead, you can see on the map there, instead of, instead of taking the most direct route, which goes from Jerusalem up to Galilee, just a direct route straight north, they would go completely out of the way. They would either go down by the Mediterranean Sea and cross up through the Valley of Jezreel, or they would cut down towards Jericho, come up through the Jordan Rift Valley, up through the Jordan River, and up into Galilee, completely going around the area of Samaria so that they would have to have no contact with these Samaritans. That's the story. That's, that's the, 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 the tension that is existing between these people. So, so why... And by the way, that also makes it, isn't it so cool to, to think that in John chapter four, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, in the beginning of his ministry, in John chapter four, if you read it, it says, he, he said, I must go this way. Now he could have gone around, right? But Jesus said, no, I must go through. Why? Because he had to meet with that Samaritan woman at the well in Sychar. Pretty cool. And did Jesus have to go through Samaria to return? Well, no. But isn't that cool? Jesus didn't avoid it. He didn't avoid Samaritans. In fact, Jesus came for Samaritans, didn't he? That's amazing. So, so why are they refusing hospitality to Jesus and his followers? Well, the short answer, which I obviously did not give you, okay? The short answer is because they're Jews. The Samaritans hate the Jews. The Jews hate the Samaritans. They hate each other. And more specifically, notice that Jesus was, he was kind of received when he was heading north, wasn't he? In John chapter 4. But now Jesus and his followers, they are marching towards where? Towards Jerusalem. Why would Jews in Galilee head to Jerusalem? To worship at the temple. In fact, Jesus is making his way back for a very important holiday called Passover. That's where it's all gonna go down, right? And so these Samaritans see Jesus and his disciples heading towards Jerusalem and like, uh-uh-uh, we're not gonna help you. We're not gonna help you in any possible way. Well, as you can imagine, as you can imagine, his followers, his disciples, especially his, his really close ones, they were not too impressed. This didn't sit too well with some of Jesus' closest disciples. In verse 54, we read that when the disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Now, when we read a story like that, right, when we, when we read about that, we start to get a little bit of a sense for why Jesus nicknamed James and John, why he nicknamed these brothers the sons of thunder. Sons of thunder. These guys, these guys are upset. Now, see, they, they, they're bringing what, see, they believe that Jesus is the Messiah, right? They are following Israel's rightful king, right? And they come into this area and the most common courtesy would be to offer hospitality, but they're denied it. And so they get really upset, right? They're like, really? You're not gonna invite us in for tea? How about we call down fire from heaven and smote you, you know? <laughs> we'll just, we'll wipe you off the face of the map. 
No tea? <laughs> but you have to understand there's, there's a lot going on. When we, when we read the scriptures through our Western eyes, there's so much that we don't take in. And, and one of the things that we don't take in is that this is an honor and shame culture. Jesus, in the land of the Bible, the world of the Bible is an honor-shame culture. We don't know a lot about that in the United States. Other cultures today are still like that way. Many places in, in, in Asia still have this honor-shame uh, culture. And so what, what the Samaritans are doing is they are publicly shaming the one that these disciples believe is the king. You don't shame a king. That is, that is warrant to die. And so in their minds, like, this is it. We are, we are going to take them out, right? So they're infuriated. And they, they say, look, Jesus, we can do this. Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? Where would they come up with an idea like that? Where, where would they get it? Is it Elijah? I heard it. Yes. The Old Testament book of, Eli uh, 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 of Second Kings, there's a story about Elijah. And it's a great story. What happens is there's a wicked king. His name is Ahaziah. And Ahaziah is, is, is not too happy with Elijah. So he sends a captain with, with 50 men, troops, to go out and arrest Elijah. And they come out and they're like, Elijah, you're under arrest. We're taking you in. And they called him, oh, man of God. They said, oh, man of God, you're under arrest. And Elijah says, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your men. It happened, just like that, okay? So news gets back to the King Ahaziah, like your, your captain and all 50 men are dead. He said, well, let's try it again. Sends another man, captain, and another 50 men. They go out and they said, man of God, you're under arrest. Uh, Elijah says the same thing. If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your men. Poof, they're gone. He's lost 100 men now. King Ahaziah is not a quick learner. He sends a third troop out. And this captain shows up and he says, he says, please, oh man of God, spare our lives. Have mercy on me and my men. And we're told that the, the angel of the Lord spoke to Elijah and said, don't be afraid, Elijah, go with him, go with him. So Elijah goes and mercy was granted to them. So anyway, James and John, they remember this story and they're like, Remember when Elijah did that? It is so time for a reenactment. We got to do this. This would be great. Wouldn't it be great, Jesus? Let's just, let's just burn this village to the ground. And it says that Jesus turned and he rebuked them. This is not what the disciples expected. They expected to be like, you know what? Good idea. Good idea. But listen, listen, listen carefully. I don't think that Jesus rebuked them because they were angry. I don't think so. I think he rebuked them because of how they responded to their anger. There is a thing called righteous anger, isn't there? The disciples, the disciples had every right to be angry by the disrespect that was being leveled at the Messiah. Brothers and sisters, I think it's important to recognize that we should be angry when people disrespect and blaspheme our Savior. It should bother you. It should upset you to see the, the blasphemy that's spoken out against God and about His Son, Jesus. It should make us angry 
when we see injustice in the world. Why? Because it makes God angry, doesn't it? You should be angered by injustice. You should also be angered when we, when we see sin being celebrated. That should anger you. It angers God. It does. We should be angry when evil is called good and good is called evil. That should make us angry. But how are we supposed to respond to our anger? It's not wrong. I don't think it was wrong that they were angry. How they responded was the problem. If, if only Jesus, if only Jesus had thought ahead and, and, and thought to teach his disciples how they should deal with those who hate them. If only Jesus had thought to teach his disciples how to deal with those who curse you or those who abuse you or say all kinds of awful things about you. If only Jesus had done that, then they would have known how to respond. Why are you laughing? Right? It's because he did, right? Jesus did do that. We spent three weeks, three weeks looking at the sermon that Jesus preached called the Sermon on the Plain. Right after he calls his disciples, he preaches this sermon, and it was a really fun sermon to look at, wasn't it? Super easy. Super easy stuff. Love your enemies, he said. <laughs> Check, right? Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. In verse 36 of that teaching, Jesus said, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. See, Jesus rebukes his disciples for their response because their response does not reflect the heart of their heavenly Father. We already mentioned John 3.16 earlier. The very next verse, John 3.17, says that God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God didn't send Jesus the first time to come and conquer. He didn't send him the first time to go into Samaria and call down fire and kill them all. He sent him to save them, right? That's why he came. Second, uh, Second Peter chapter 3, we're told that God is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's the heart of God. He wants everyone to come to know his son Jesus, and to experience forgiveness, to experience salvation. That is the heart of the Father. So Jesus is calling his disciples to show mercy, mercy. Last week, we saw that, that, that followers of Jesus should be characterized by humility, right? Jesus saw pride in his, in his followers, right? And he, and he was demonstrating that you need to be more like me. You didn't, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. You need to be more humble. So Followers of Jesus should be characterized by humility. This week, we see that Jesus is saying that, that his followers should be characterized by, by mercy. And I think this we struggle with this. I do. I do. I think sometimes we struggle to show mercy to the world. I think, sadly, we struggle to show mercy to one another, right? Holding grudges, not forgiving one another. It's not good. It's not good. It's not the heart of Jesus. It's not the heart of the Father. We need, to, we need to be merciful. That's the way that Jesus calls us to be. Jesus is calling him, rather than to, to call down fire from heaven, Jesus calls his, his disciples to pray for their enemies. Maybe they could pray a prayer like Jesus prayed when he was on the cross. Remember what he prayed? 
Jesus is literally hanging on a cross, and what does he pray? Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. That's the prayer that James and John should have prayed, like, oh, you guys are dumb. You just, you just rejected the king of the universe. That was not smart. I'm gonna pray for you. Pray that God has mercy on your soul for what you just did. That would have been a good prayer. By the way, just a, just a quick side note. In the book of Acts, in the book of Acts, after Jesus had been resurrected, after he's ascended to heaven, right? We're told that the gospel began to spread. It, it spread from Jerusalem to Judea and then to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth, right? We're told in Acts chapter eight, Acts chapter eight, we're told that the gospel spread through Samaria. And men and many men and women were coming to faith in Christ and they were being baptized. Think about this for a second. Praise God that Jesus didn't listen to James and John and just do a march through Samaria and calling down fire and destroying every village in Samaria. I mean, we don't know for sure, but it is possible that some of the very same people who rejected Jesus in this encounter were some of the very same people who came to faith in Christ in Acts chapter 8. How cool is that? But it required the mercy of God, right? Jesus came to save them. So followers of Jesus should be characterized by humility. They should be characterized by mercy. And now in these closing verses of chapter 9, we're going to see that followers of Jesus should be characterized by an unconditional devotion to Christ. Let me say that again. If you're a follower of Jesus, your life should be marked by unconditional devotion to Christ. And I, I mean, the sermon on the plain is tough. It's hard, right? It was a hard teaching from Jesus. Here's another hard one, okay? And we, we, we got to resist the temptation to soften what Jesus is saying here because we're not doing ourselves or anybody else any favors if we soften the words of Jesus because his words are what lead to eternal life, right? In these final six verses, Luke is gonna write about three brief encounters with, with would-be followers of Jesus. And in these three encounters, we're gonna see Jesus exposing some of the barriers that prevent people from becoming fully devoted followers of Christ. And the first barrier that, that, that Jesus exposes is the barrier of comfort, comfort. Verse 57, we read this. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So in this first encounter, a man comes up to Jesus and says, hey, I am all in, I'm in. I will follow Jesus. I will follow you wherever you go. Now, keep in mind, where does everybody think he's going? Where do the people think he's going? He's going to Jerusalem to do what? To overthrow the Romans and to set up his kingdom because that's what they expected the Messiah to do. So this guy says, oh, the Messiah's coming through. I'm, join I'm all in. I'm doing it. Let's go. Let's go fight the Romans. Let's beat them. Let's set up the kingdom where you're the king and I can work for you. It's going to be great. I'm all in. And Jesus says, before you sign on the line, let's just make sure that you understand what that means, okay? Do you realize 
the sacrifices that that decision might mean. He says, man, you don't understand. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. I don't even have a home. I, I, I have to stay with friends. I don't even own a home, right? In other words, Jesus is saying that following him is not a path that is marked by comfort and ease. The decision to follow Jesus is often a road that is marked by sacrifice. It's marked by discomfort. Following Jesus means letting go of the pursuit of the temporary comforts and pleasures that this world has to offer. Amen. Oh, I heard that amen out there. Like, I love that part. <laughs> Nobody says amen to that, right? Like, yes, I love the fact that we can, we can embrace suffering, discomfort, I'm, I'm all in. But that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and, need, and, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. <laughs> Deal with it. <laughs> Listen, Jesus is not trying to discourage. Because sometimes I, I, I hear people looking at this passage and say, yeah, look, Jesus is discouraging people from following him. He's not trying to discourage people from following him, but he is challenging them to, to count the cost, to understand what, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He says, before you decide to be my follower, make sure you understand what this means. Are you willing to live a life of discomfort if that's what it takes? That's really what it boils down to. Are you willing? Are you willing to go without are you willing to make sacrifices here on earth in order to invest in eternity? Are you? Am I? Followers of Jesus are expected to place their devotion to Christ above their own comfort. By the way, I feel like I should say this. This isn't to say, this isn't to say that there is no comfort for those who follow Christ. Like every single one of us should be homeless. We should all walk around getting beat up every single day with black eyes and bloodied backs. Like that's, that's not what Jesus is saying here, is he? That's not what he's saying. Obviously, the Lord blesses his children in so many ways. Just like your parent, parents here, right? You, you bless your kids, you love them, right? But what he is saying is that, again, his followers should be placing their devotion to him above their own comforts. And that's something we gotta wrestle with, right? This is a hard teaching from Jesus. And I, and I don't know, do we do it flawlessly? Do we ever place our comforts above our co commitment to Christ? Yeah, praise God, he's merciful, right? He is merciful. Well, the second encounter, that's the first encounter. So this is easy stuff. All right, second encounter. Jesus says to another man, follow me. But rather than accept Jesus' invitation to follow him, the man says, not yet. Not yet. Verse 59, we read to another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim 
the kingdom of God. Okay. You know you're thinking it. You are, right? You have to admit that this sounds like a very reasonable request, right? And that's because when we read it, when we read this, it sounds like this man's father has just died. My dad just died. Jesus, can I at least go put together a funeral service for my dad, make sure he gets buried, and then I'll come follow you. But that is probably not the case here. That is probably not the case. Let, let, me, let me explain. As we talked about in, in this series, because we've encountered death before in this series, in that culture, when a person died, they were almost always buried right away, usually the same day, okay? So if this man's father was already dead, if he had just died, his father would have, have already been buried, or it, literally, if he had just died hours before, what would, the, what would the son be doing? He would be busy tending to his father, not walking on the road with Jesus. No, what, what, as one commentator says, the, the phrase, bury my father, was a colloquialism, meaning to take care of my father until his death to see that he is buried with dignity and to dispose of his estate according to his wishes. In this case, this would-be disciple asked Jesus for an indefinite delay. What this man is displaying is a lack of urgency. That's the second barrier that keeps people from becoming fully devoted followers of Christ, a lack of urgency. He's using his father as an excuse in order to avoid making a commitment to follow Jesus, and Jesus knows it. Don't you think, I mean, think about it. Don't you think if this guy's dad had just died, that Jesus would say, obviously, go be with your family. I mean, do you know the heart of Jesus? The reason why we go, ooh, with that statement is because it doesn't jive with what we know about Jesus, does it? It's because we don't understand what's going on here. What this man lacked was a sense of, of, of urgency. Jesus says, instead of, instead of you know, sitting around waiting for your dad to die so you can take care of the estate, nothing self-serving there, see, see barrier number one about comfort. Instead of sitting around doing that, you have an urgent call in your life to bring the good news to those who need to hear it. Go and proclaim the kingdom of God is what he tells the man. Like many people today, this, this man believed that he would get around to following Jesus eventually. Eventually. Thanks for the invitation. Appreciate it. I'll let you know. I'll get back to you in a day, a week, a year, a decade. Let me go and do what I want to do first, and then I'll think about following Jesus. The problem with that, of course, is that we don't know what the next day holds, do we? We don't know how much time we have. It's a foolish way to live, to put off following Jesus. It's, 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 it's a gamble that is very, very serious with very high stakes. Not only that, but think about this. Sometimes we think about, we think about becoming followers of Christ as though it's all about us. It isn't just about you. Yes, Jesus died for you, but Jesus invites you as his follower to help others come to know him as well so they experience salvation as well. 
You put it off for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and think about 10, 20, or 30 years worth of people you weren't sharing the good news with. So Jesus says, go and share the good news. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Well, that brings us to the third, and I believe the final encounter here in this passage, where where Jesus exposes another barrier for people becoming fully devoted followers of Christ. And this is it. Jesus requires an unwavering commitment. Verse 61, he says, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now again, this seems like a pretty reasonable request, right? This guy says, I- I'm willing. I'm willing to follow you, Jesus, but, but, but first, I, I want to take some time to say goodbye to my friends and, and my family. And there's actually precedent for a request like this in the Old Testament. In the, in the book of 1 Kings, when the prophetic torch was going to be passed from Elijah to Elisha, Elijah comes up to Elisha and puts his his prophetic cloak. He takes his cloak and he puts it on Elisha's shoulders, which was an invitation to come and follow me. Come learn from me. Come and be my disciple. And, And Elisha said to Elijah, first, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. Sounds similar to what this guy is saying to Jesus, right? And here's, and here's what that meant to Elijah. Here's what happened. Elisha goes back to his family. And by the way, when Elijah comes up to him, he was, he was working his team of oxen. He's, he was out farming, working in the, in, in the fields. He goes back to his friends and his family. He kills the whole team of oxen, sacrifices them to prepare a meal as a final goodbye to his family. He is all in, Right? He's not leaving like, well, I'll go follow you for a little bit, but hey, take care of my oxen for me just in case this whole uh, prophet thing doesn't work out. I'll come back. He doesn't do that. He sacrifices his whole team of oxen. He says goodbye to his friends and family, and then he leaves and he follows Jesus, never looking back, not focusing on what's behind him. He's looking forward to what God has in store for him. And so Jesus, Jesus hears this person say, well, first, let me go say goodbye to my friends and family. And Jesus is like, oh, I've heard this story before, right? Jesus is familiar with the story of of Elisha. And so he says, hey, let's be clear. Let's be clear about something. If you're going to request to say goodbye like Elisha, let's make sure that you say goodbye the way that Elisha did, right? Elisha was all in, not looking back, but looking forward because because no one who puts his hands to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus uses the, the imagery of a farmer plowing his fields. He says, you, you can't plow your fields if you're looking over your shoulder, right? You ever tried mowing the lawn that way? I, I think sometimes, oh, I don't want to embarrass my kids. But when they first learned how to mow the lawn, I'll say this. I think that must be how they did it when they first started. Now they're really good. They can mow in a straight line. But you can tell when someone's doing this while they're mowing, right? Or driving, (laughs) you know? It's, yeah. 
You can't drive forward looking in the rear view mirror. You can't do that, right? What's going to happen? Disaster, right? If it's a field, you're going to have really crooked rows. If it's a car, you're going to have a, a, a crash, right? This is, this is bad news. So Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you can't spend your time looking back. But you and I both know, you know this, that far too often, right, people say they want to follow Christ, but they also want to hold on to their past, right? The good and the bad, right? They, they, they want to look back. They want to follow Christ, but, but they also want to hold on to the things of the world. I want both. I want this and I want that. I want, I want to follow Jesus, but I also want to hold on to this, to this sin in, in my life. Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, does that mean that we, again, does that mean that we never, oops, spending a little too much time looking back these days? We, we do, right? We struggle with these things. But again, praise God, he's merciful. He's helping us become more and more committed, helping us to stop like putting a brace on our neck to say, forward, Chris, look forward, stop looking back, forward facing here. Instead of looking back, we need to fix our eyes on, on, on who? We need to fix our eyes on Jesus, right? Brothers and sisters, Jesus is really clear in these verses. The cost of following Jesus is, is, is serious business, isn't it? And we shouldn't soften it. We shouldn't soften it. The reality is, I mean, too often I think that as Christians, we're like, well, like, just, just, just accept Jesus, and, and, and just keep living the way you live. Don't worry about doing anything. Just pray this prayer and you're going to be good. That's not how Jesus presented following him, is it? And we shouldn't either. We shouldn't either. Jesus said it's, it's serious business to be his follower. Jesus expects his followers to, to embrace his calling on their lives with, with the same hardened resolve that he had, with that same fierce determination that caused Jesus to fix his face like flint and head to Jerusalem, Jesus expects us to embrace our calling as his followers with the same fierce determination. I am all in. I'm not looking back. I'm giving up the pursuit of comforts. Whatever you ask me to sacrifice, it is worth it. I am all in because your kingdom is all that matters. That's the determination that Jesus wants from his followers. Followers of Jesus must be willing to sacrifice temporary comforts. We must be willing to follow him without delay, and we must be willing to follow him with unwavering devotion. Let me close with this. These are the words of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We read, the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so easily, right? With, with unwavering commitment, we're not looking back, right? Laying aside all of those temptations, all the good, all the bad, everything, we're just laying it all aside with our eyes fixed forward. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking where? Looking to Jesus, right? Fixing our eyes, fixing our face like flint, with a hardened resolve that I am coming after you, Jesus. I want to be like you, Jesus. I am all in. He's the founder. He's the perfecter of our faith. Who, who, for the joy that was set before him, 
who for the joy that was set before him, when he recognized that the time was near for his departure, he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem, right? Where he endured the cross, it says, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus wasn't excited about the cross. You know that, right? He wasn't. He prayed in the garden, God, if there's any other way, anything, can we do this any other way? Let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. My comforts aren't what is important. Your will is what's important. And I'm gonna do your will no matter what it costs. That is what Jesus expects from his followers as well. It's not easy, but it's worth it, right? So let's follow Jesus, brothers and sisters, with unconditional devotion. What conditions are you placing on your followership right now? Throw them out. All in. Jump in. If you're a follower of Christ already and you've been holding back, stop holding back, all right? Give him your all. If you've never made a decision to follow Christ, don't delay. Don't delay. Make that decision today. Tell God, I'm all in. I'm all in. Jesus, forgive me for my sins. Please be my Lord. Be my Savior. I want to follow you for the rest of my life. He's got work for you to do. There's a lot of people who still don't know the good news that there is hope for life after this life. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your words. We thank you that though they are hard, they are true. And in these words is life. God, we pray that, that you would work in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit to show us areas where maybe we're, we're holding on to comfort or maybe we're just not quite all in or maybe we're looking back. God, would you meet us where we're at and help us to become more devoted to following you. Thank you for the example of your son who set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem to pay the price for our sins. And he told us that we were supposed to be like him. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And God, I pray that we would recognize it as a great privilege that we get to live our lives for the sake of others. That we get to live our lives for your glory. And so go with us now, Lord. Help us to go out into our communities and to shine bright, to bring hope and love and healing into a broken world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.